Hello and welcome to the Tony Daily, Tell Me on a Sunday, with me, Tony Kent. It is the podcast that invites you to come find yourself so you can listen to this and say, oh, thank God for that, it's not just me. And I can speak to you and say, no, it is not just you, it is also me. So let's talk social mobility. I have been meaning to do this for ages and I was prompted to pull my finger out by a post that I saw on a Facebook group called Basing Street History. And ultimately, I don't think social mobility is possible in the way that it has been in previous generations. And it was kind of brought back to my attention because I was thinking about how um, parts of my family came to be in Basingstoke, where I grew up. And that was through the um, London Overspill Initiative, which moved. Now, I am getting a little bit of information off Wikipedia here. So, you know, pinch of salt and all that. But it moved, I think, something like a million people out of Greater London and into either new towns or ex- extended, expanded towns um, outside of Greater London. And the reason for doing that started in the 30s, but then it accelerated after the Second World War because people's houses have been bombed to fuck. And um, this post that was highlighted, it's really touching because it shows the paperwork that a family in London were given confirming that they had been allocated a house in Basingstoke and how much it would cost and the things that they would have to adhere to around the type of fencing that was used, how they kept their garden, um, how they uh, were to erect television aerials, um, really like a fantastic piece of social history. And then in the comments, there was one that um, really touched me and it's lovely to read people's kind of memories of this so um one person have said has said we came down in 1969 from london at the time my parents were paying seven pound a week rent for a flat in london basingstoke was half the price for a whole house when we moved in i asked my parents who lived upstairs um i mean it's it seems like that and and it's followed up by someone else saying Um, A girl at school in London stopped playing with me when I told her we were moving and we would have a toilet and bathroom and they were both indoors. She said I'd become a snob and didn't want to play with me anymore. Um, It's it's just, you know, this is still in living memory. And I think, oh, there's one final one here where um, Dave says... We had come from a one-bedroom bedsit with a shared bathroom to a brand-new two-bedroom house in Watson Way on Winklebury. I thought I had died and gone to heaven when I saw I had my own bedroom. I was only seven years old at the time. And there's a whole part that I kind of missed or didn't take an interest in when I was a child. Um, and most of the families where I grew up were in part, if not, you know, the mum and the dad, it would have been one of them would have been moved to Basingstoke from London. And certainly as a teenager, me and a lot of our friends discounted it because we were like, oh, for God's sake, banging on, on, on about London. But that was their culture and their history. So <laughs> how rude were we? Um, but to my point, that kind of 
mass improvement of living conditions for people is just not going to be possible on that scale at this point in time. And I pray to all things sacred that we don't have another war. Um, But it kind of outlines to me that for those families who had had their livelihoods taken away and you know, lives destroyed in some cases, houses, homes destroyed, uh, were living in really awful conditions. The government embarked on this huge um, campaign of, of building houses in a way that lifted people into far better living conditions, improved health outcomes, gave greater access to fresh air and clean spaces. Um, and created communities that weren't crowded. So for people like my, um, (laughs) I'll get into trouble, but, you know, for my husband's family, they had come from very humble beginnings and then had managed to achieve, um, you know, better level of education than their parents' generation um, better quality of housing, better career opportunities. And so, you know, for my uh, my in-laws, they definitely enjoyed a better quality of life than their parents did. And I don't think it is going to be possible to do that in such a wholesale way anymore. And so I am cautious actually when thinking about talking about social mobility the way it's positioned you know it is getting harder and harder for young people I think to change their circumstances because the government is not invested in helping people to do that a lot of policy now is designed in such a way that people do get trapped So, um, I mean, this is all a bit like downbeat, isn't it? Bloody hell. But I thought we need to be honest about these things and think about, okay, if somebody does want to improve their um, life, improve their potential opportunities that are going to come their way, it has to be a, a very honest conversation about what it's going to take to get there so when you see things like leveling up programs and phrases like you don't have to leave to achieve um I don't believe that I don't believe it because lots and lots of the underpinning support that was there when certainly when I was a child isn't there anymore um So I have pulled together a collection of episodes of the podcast, daily ones, where I share a few reflections. Uh, You've got culture, class and corporate life. Um, You've got class polish and gut instinct. You've got social mobility and health inequality. But they're all here in one place just for you. So have a listen. Let me know what you think. Really up for discussing this in more detail. Um, and get in touch. Yeah, find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, 
probably not Twitter. I can't be bothered to go on Twitter anymore. Um, <laughs> and uh, you could also email the Tony Daily at gmail.com if you want. I hope you enjoy. Bye bye. Hello and welcome to the Tony Daily with me, Tony Kent. It's the podcast that invites you to come find yourself so you can listen to this and go, well, thank God for that. It's not just me. And I can speak to you and say, no, it's not just you. It is also me. So I'm recording this in the house, which is empty. I'm on my own. Well, I'm never fully on my own because the dogs are here, um, but it's nice. Just have a moment to myself. I have been to Sainsbow's today. Um, interesting. It's um, Sunday. I'm recording this on a Sunday. And you would think midday on a Sunday on a plaited jubes weekend in the UK um, would be empty. No, no, no. I think lots of people think like I do. They think, well, go Sunday lunchtime. Won't be anyone there. Everyone's there and everyone's fucking hungry. So we're all filling our trolleys with snacks rather than actual food. Um, today, I thought something that's been popping up often for me is culture. And it's popped up in three unrelated places recently. So it came up first in a therapy session that I had when I was talking about kind of how I grew up and the estates um, where I grew up and hung out when I was a teenager and how things are very much the same in uh, lots of places. Lots of my family still live there. Um, and how it felt to be around that again and the differences between how um, I grew up and how things are today. And, and there's a cultural difference. And um, I think culture is a, a difficult topic to discuss in the context of class, but it's been sort of bubbling along there in the background. And I keep sort of dipping in and out of it. It came up again when I was interviewing someone for my University Challenged podcast. And I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can find that. You could just look for University Challenged. Um, and it's not gone live yet. It will do soon. I was interviewing a guy called Tom Armstrong. He's a fashion creative. He's in fashion marketing. Um, he has done some campaigns with people like um, Adidas. Um, he was spotted after he set up his own kind of music and fashion fanzine. Um, and he's one of the founding members of an organisation called Common People, which is about working class representation in the creative industries. And he and I were having a, a, a chat as part of this interview process. And I said to him, was university expected, encouraged? You know, what was it like? And, and he was saying about, well, where he grew up um, culturally. So he grew up, um, uh, I think, like East London, East, east of London. Um, and he said, well, the culture was oh, so much about this. But for me, it was like, ding, 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 ding. Yes. Um, it was about being self-made. 
And for most people, it was you leave school, you graft, you um, are a lot of the time like living for the weekend. It was about, you know, when you're a young person and you want the clothes and the music and it's about looking your very best, getting out of the weekend, enjoying clubs and music and pubs. Um, and the way that you earned your money, it was about being self-made. So people go into the trades or people start their own businesses. And that is very much alive for me or, or reminds me of the kind of people that I was around. And predominantly for the men where I grew up, it was like, want to get yourself a trade. Um, it was different for women. Um, I think we were of that generation where um, lots of our mothers had been or were housewives because that was expected Um, or you went into nursing um, or you did shop work or, you know, it wasn't so much about women being self-made, definitely about the men being self-made. And I think a lot of that is, is changing, but there was that sense of, yeah, he said culturally university wasn't a thing. It was about... You make your money, you find your route to doing it. And and actually for him as a creative, there weren't the role models around him that were, well, this is how you get into fashion um, and advertising. Um, this is how you do it. So it was a really interesting interview with him that I'm excited to share. So that's the second time it came up. And it came up when I was listening to a podcast while I was wandering around Sainsbury's. Um, Why not? Um, I had to pause it, though. (laughs) So here's an image. Um, I'm going around Sainsbury's with my trolley, with my little uh, nectar uh, scanning device. Um, I've put some avos in there, avocados. Put some avocados in there, living my best life. Um, And I'm listening to the Development by David podcast, which is hosted by David McIntosh. Um, I've interviewed him on University Challenge. He's interviewed me on his podcast. (laughs) We have podcast wankers together. Um, But he's got a fascinating backstory. I will put a link to Hib's podcast in the show notes. And in this episode, he's interviewing his um, one of his heroes, um, Seth Godin, who I really hadn't heard very much about at all because I live in a hole um, in the ground. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I think for anyone that has a passing interest in uh, marketing, um and creativity he's a bit of a legend um and uh yeah so so david's like interviewing one of his absolute heroes and i have to pause it because the uh, announcement's going would the owner of the mercedes vehicle a registration number <laughs> you see pretty much everyone in the shop has gone well i ain't got a mercedes mate um so i had to pause seth godin uh, so i could listen to uh, an announcement that something had happened because everyone's then wondering, aren't they? Come to customer services. And and I'm thinking, um, I bet they've parked in a space that they're not supposed to park in. That's what I thought. I made the leap from Mercedes owner to, yeah, they've just, they just reckon they could park across three spaces. I'm sorry if you own a Mercedes and that's very judgmental of me. And I am going to lay the blame for that at Robert Popper, the, um, 
television uh, makers feet. The, I think he's produ- writer and producer of Friday Night Dinner because there's a very, very funny episode about Sheila and her Mercedes. Anyway, um, where was I going with that? Yeah, so culture came up on that too. And it was something that Seth Godin was talking about, about it being challenging and complicated. And I thought, yes, 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 mate. Yes, it is. (laughs) I might email him and go, yes, mate. Um, So it's been on my mind a lot. And I was driving home. Um, and before I set off, I went, I'd finished the podcast. So, you know, David, next time, could you record one long enough that it can take me around Sainsbury's and then home? Um, I thought I'll put some music on. I've gone on Spotify and it said recommended for you, Tony. I'm like, uh, this part of me hates that idea. I hate that an algorithm is telling me what to listen to. However, it had set me up a few playlists. One was Stoner Rock, Queens of the Stone Age, Caius, and then I've run out of more to say. Um, And the other one was Hip Hop. And the first track on there was Good Day by Ice Cube. I was like, oh, go on then. And from there, it went to Red Man, Time for Some Action, and then it went to the Funky Feel one by Cypress Hill um, and What You Want by Beastie Boys. I was like, Jesus, Spotify, you got it bang on. Um, but in the context of culture, it made me think about, I think it's something we all go through as young people. Uh, and then I think maybe you revisit it again when you get into your 40s or whatever. But um, there had been, there's that trying on, isn't there? So... When I was a teenager, music was so important to me. And as Eminem would say, you um, lose yourself in the music, uh, which uh, I did. I sort of, you know, that was one of my escapes, one of my releases. And so I lost myself in music. Um, but you do that trying on. I was really into heavy metal for a while. I thought, am I a heavy metal person? I used to draw the the uh, cover art for Iron Maiden albums. Um, I liked Wasp. Um, I had a poster of Heart. I was really into Guns N' Roses, went to see them, went to see Soundgarden, uh, went to see Acid Rain. I was like well into the metal scene. Um, And then we all got really into hip hop culture. So it was all about listening to Cypress Hill and Ice Cube and NWA and watching like Do the Right Thing and New Jack City and oh God, yeah, Big Daddy Kane. And so I was, you know, trying that on. Uh, Do I fit in hip hop culture? And here goes my recording equipment. I think it was going to stop itself then. Yesterday, I had to record the second part of my podcast. I was so annoyed because I felt like I had a great flow. And then my laptop just goes, yeah, I'm going to put up the lock screen now. And um, it stopped recording. I was so annoyed because I lost my flow. Hopefully, it doesn't stand out too much. Anyway, tried on hip hop culture. Yeah, I kind of enjoyed it, but it was just, a, I don't know. The music from from like my heavy metal and from hip hop and it's just there in me now. So I was, 
was <laughs> driving along with my golf, with all the Sainsbury shopping in the back, with my avocados, um, singing along <laughs> to, to so what, so what, so what you want. Um, yeah. And I think it kind of extends then into, so you've got all that trying on. And I know it's all with my, you know, my kids being teenagers, there are, they're like, people are emos and people are uh, into this and people are into that. And they've got their little tribes at school. So it's still, you know, still goes on. Um, and then it made me think about with that whole corporate culture, you know, that was where I joined in a lot, but then... It didn't quite fit. So I liked the, I'm going to have new experiences. I'm, you know, I, I owned shares. Um, I got to shop in some, buy some, I got to buy some investment pieces. Oh, you must have a good investment winter coat. Um, I bought into quite a lot of it. But then there came that, what for me does not fit, that, well, you must send your children to private school and you must um, look for the next promotion and the next promotion, the next promotion, and you must buy a second home and you must stay here until the share price is so good that you can retire. And I just thought, fuck that. Um, Life was too short. So I guess maybe we do a lot of that throughout our lives. And and part of this podcast is an element of finding expression for who I am and pulling the things through that have always been there. So that love of music and writing and language and desire for connection and helping feel people helping feel people, I'm <laughs> not feeling you, helping people to feel heard and understood and not glossing over some of the challenges that there are in life. So, yeah, I went from corporate culture to then freelance coach, which is great, actually, because hearing about some of the stuff going on in the workplace at the moment, you're like, oh, I'm so pleased I don't have to work with those people. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, it's a topic that I really want to explore some more. So I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, what do you reckon? And I wonder, this part of me wonders about that. Is there an intentional, and I know that there's a train of thought on this, you know, there's an eroding of working class culture. And this is partly why I do the University Challenge podcast to say you don't have to go because there has been a concerted effort by successive governments to say more and more people need to go for the university system when they don't. And if you don't want to, that is fine. And for some people, it's just not, it's just not a thing. It's not a thing. It doesn't, and it doesn't have to be a thing. So I'm interested in exploring that. And I'll, I'm probably saying this in a really clumsy way, but, um, I'm interested to explore it some more. So maybe you'll hear more from me on that. Um, maybe I'll listen back to this and go, what on earth was I talking about? But what do I hope for you? I hope that you can go back and listen to a playlist of songs that make you feel like you're 17 again. 
that's what I hope for you. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you think someone would like this, please give it a share. I will be back with you tomorrow. Welcome to the Tony Daily with me, Tony Kent. It's a podcast that invites you to come find yourself so you could listen to this and say, oh, thank God for that. It's not just me. And I could speak to you and say, no, it is not just you. It is also me. Today, 16th of June, uh, is the date I'm recording this. In the UK, it is Social Mobility Awareness Day. And it's an initiative that's being run by an organisation called Making the Leap. And I was lucky enough to host their Social Mobility Awards um, last year. It was done virtually. Previously, they've had people like Steph McGovern. And I was talking to someone about this the other day. Um, when I went to speak at John O'Gaunt School, one of their prior speakers was Bear Grylls. And I did the Zen Internet Partner Conference. And previously, they'd had Gary Delaney. So it would seem like... Um, during the lockdown times, when lots of events had to go virtual, although Hungerford was face-to-face to John Gaunt School, um, <laughs> big celebs were not doing the online thing. So if you've got an event where you don't have big celebrity budget, speak to me, because I have been almost famous, uh, booked by companies that have booked proper famous people. Anyway, back to Social Mobility Awareness Day. So Making the Leap are an organisation that are focused on helping um, young people to overcome barriers to opportunities. And I really loved their definition of what social mobility is, because for some people, they're like, don't even know what you're on about, Tony. And they define it as um, making sure that people, regardless of their background, can have access to, and it's not limited to these things, decent housing, the ability to feed yourself and your family and financial security. And I thought that's a really beautiful way to put it. Um, and today uh, it was really, I guess, rather fitting that I had the chance to go to um, Aerospace Bristol, where there is an actual Concord. And as I walked in, past all the teeny tiny children wearing high vis that were there on school trips, they were like foundation. They were so small and so cute. Um I got to present at a women in leadership event or a women's leadership development event for an organization. Um, and I got that opportunity via champion speakers. So it's um, really exciting to have a speaker agency um, find me a fantastic gig. And it was so good. And I had the chance to tell my own story, which was phrased as <laughs> from council estate via corporate to creativity. And it is about how really your background should not be a barrier to what you want to achieve. But in reality, it can be. So I share my experiences of how it was that I was able to go from a set of circumstances where really you would have thought it was likely I would end up um, repeating a cycle um, and falling 
I don't want to say victim to, but experiencing the same problems that my mum did, um, that of financial insecurity, that of overcrowded housing, that of very poor physical and mental health, um, and all the other things that went on to impact my family based on how I was when I was sort of 14 to 18, you would have thought that was a likely outcome. And so when I deliver my talks, and I do this with a good dose of humour, don't worry, it's not all there to make people feel upset and and to make me look really worthy. Um, I talk about how things like a second chance at education, how meeting amazing role models at Read Employment, hello Donna, if you ever get to listen to this, I love you, Um, how having something to aspire to and seeing someone who I felt was like me showing me the way, how having um, good mentors, how meeting somebody, who a partner who did not have a chaotic home life, um, how hiring managers that used recruitment practices that looked beyond education or educational attainment all of those things kind of came together. Plus, there's a bit of chance, a bit of luck, a bit of being in the right place at the right time, but also a lot of being unafraid to ask, um, being on the lookout for opportunities and being willing to learn. All of those things kind of came together to help me get to a position where I have decent housing, the ability to feed myself and my family, and financial security and it the earlier you start this the more likely it is to happen so I wanted to dedicate this episode to making the leap and organizations like theirs who are working on the front line to really put in the effort that's needed and offer the practical skills and guidance and training and access to opportunity that um Otherwise, people are structurally not able to to get access to. So, you know, if you've not got amazing educational attainment, if you live in an area that um, has got multiple levels of um, disadvantage, if you don't have a network, if you don't have connections in industries, um, I, I didn't know anybody that worked in technology, but that's where I ended up. I didn't know anybody that was a writer, but that's what I do. I didn't know anyone that made their money from professional speaking. That's something else that I do today. So there is a degree of um, seeking out that you have to kind of have. I think as an individual, you've got to have that willingness, curiosity, bloody-mindedness, tenacity, ability to get on with people and all of those things actually came as a result of my upbringing um and then there is um the importance for organizations to proactively reach out and look for those young people who really do want to um just create a bit of stability in their lives. We don't all have to want to go on and be the head of the Bank of England. Um, for some of us, it is enough to have D 
decent housing, the ability to feed yourself and your family and financial security. So this episode is for Making the Leap and I will put a link to them in the show notes and also to all of the organisations that are making real efforts and putting money into programmes that are designed to um, give access to opportunity to young people that otherwise wouldn't even be allowed in the door. So that's it for today. Uh, oh, I got to stand in front of Concord. Don't know if I mentioned that. <laughs> you can have a look at my socials. You can find that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you think it'd be of interest to someone that you know, please send it on to them. If you want to book me to speak, please drop me a line and book me and I will be back with you tomorrow. Hello and welcome to the Tony Daily with me, Tony Kent. It's the podcast that invites you to come find yourself so you can listen to this and go, oh, thank God for that. It's not just me. And I can speak to you and say, no, it's not just you. It is also me. I had a conversation today with a prospective client. Fingers crossed they are going to book me to speak at um, their Diversity and Inclusion Week which is coming up end of September. And um, I would be the keynote speaker um, on a day that's focusing on social mobility. And when I was um, speaking to the person that's arranging the event, we had a really honest chat about our experiences of um, what it means to Um, achieve social mobility if you want to call it that um, to place yourself in a position where um, economically you are more secure than your parents were um, and how that impacts you kind of culturally socially and in both of our cases we moved on quite significantly um, from where we had started out in life and um, one thing that you know when you just feel like oh my god that person completely knows my experience and we talked about the sense of how you feel that you have to carry others Um, and something I talk about a lot when I do a keynote speech um, is the fact that social mobility for most people as I or social mobility as I have experienced it is a solo journey so I was able to um, put myself in a position of financial security and emotional stability um, that just wasn't present when I was growing up and I'm able to provide that to my children and that is where you know it kind of takes almost um, maybe not a generation to show but maybe the one of the truer measures outcomes aspects of it is what you do for the next generation of your family and um what was i saying oh yeah so sorry this is quite personal um so excuse me if i'm a bit mm, or and uh, i want to choose my words carefully um but there is this sense that when you have got to the point where you are um, financially, emotionally, socially, culturally um, more stable than that of your um, 
parents, siblings, it's a strange feeling and there can be that sense of, well, I must provide for everybody else. Surely that's what you're supposed to do, isn't it? That's what you have to do. And actually, you don't have to do those things unless you want to do them. And often people don't expect you to do those things. It's um, something that you might place upon yourself. And um, we got into some real um, detail on our respective experiences. And it was amazing just to have a conversation with someone that has been where I have been. And I'd kind of got to the point where I did acknowledge and accept that it wasn't up to me to fix everything for everyone. And it wasn't useful for me to view um, other people, other people's uh, outcomes as my responsibility. Um, And she said, actually, her counsellor had put it really well or had asked her to um, answer a question. And her counsellor had said to her, who are your dependents? And this person had said, oh, right. So they are my mum, my brother. Now, this is a person who has a partner and and children. And that is kind of I understand feeling that because you're parents and your siblings are not your dependents absolutely not when they are all fully grown adults um yeah it was just really interesting so I had definitely been in a position where whether I wanted to acknowledge it or not there was something internally for me that was saying your um family beyond your husband and children who are your actual dependents um, are your dependents and that's not the case when you've got grown-up brothers and sisters they're not your dependents they're adults and um, it took me a long time to really I guess believe that in myself and it's weird the amount of um, (laughs) sort of messed up guilt that you feel um, if you are in a position where you are seen to be doing very well, um, comparatively. Um, nobody, n- nobody's telling you to feel guilty. Uh, nobody expects you to feel guilty, and yet you do. Um, and that is something that I have worked through with my therapist. But you know, it's um, it's something that has been incredibly useful to me I'm saying this in the shed I'm in the shed bearing my soul um I spoke to uh oh the um writer who was giving me feedback as part of the memoir writing course and um so something that she said and and just to kind of put this into context I know I'm just rambling away here um but while I've been talking I've been thinking oh blimey you know this is very personal Um, but what the hell, uh, that's the point of the podcast. So my hope is that you listen to this and go, do you know what? I felt that I've been there. Um, and the person that was doing the feedback session for me on the memoir writing course, um, she said to me, don't be afraid to be serious, Tony, because I do use humor, um, as a, um, 
a tool to cope. It's a coping mechanism and a defense mechanism. Um, and of course, you know, that's the deal, isn't it? When in the worst of times, humor is what saves us sometimes. You know, you've got to be able to see the funny side and bring light and laughter into your life as a means to um, decompress. So she said to me, don't be afraid to be serious. And so I am going to be doing a bit of that. Well, I'm doing a bit of that now. But um, yeah, it made me think about the kind of stuff I share and what I talk about. And actually, I shared a piece via oh Twitter and Facebook, Instagram. It's really like, oh, you might disagree with me, it's hard to share stuff easily because it wants you to do things in a certain way. And I'm thinking about... <laughs> I don't know, maybe not coming off Instagram and not being on there as much. Twitter is, for me, although it is a bit wild west, a lot easier to kind of share stuff. And you do get a bit more engagement of people replying. Um, So far, touch wood, no mega weirdos um, knocking at my door. However, the point is this. um, There is a brilliant short film up at the link in the show notes, which is called Speak to Me, Listen to Me and or talk to me listen to me I think and it is um by a a brilliant filmmaker and a production company that I follow and I'm interviewing a member of their team for my university challenged podcast also hello anyone that was getting their A-level results today and good luck to anyone getting their GCE GCSE results next week do check out university challenged if you've got kids that are worried, fearful, don't want to go to uni, can't go to uni. Um, there's some great episodes on there featuring um, early in career young people who didn't go to uni and are doing some great things. Um, anyway, the video that I shared was by this young filmmaker who um, has uh, disabilities and it's a brilliant two-minute film about a guy going to interview someone for um about their metal magazine and basically failing to engage with the two people that are there to meet him who are both disabled and the music for some people is challenging because it's real metal it's really you know for me love a bit of metal um the trooper by iron maiden is my favorite thank you for asking and um the subject matter is challenging challenges you to think about how do you allow people to express themselves and what is representation like in the media really and how accurate a portrayal is it of the wider world um and it made me think about one of the um actors is uh or has um down syndrome and it made me reflect on how for my brother he finds it hard to be heard um because he has uh language difficulties he has a stammer he has a bit of anxiety um, as well as having Down syndrome. And there's an element of people, firstly, just go, oh, well, he's Down syndrome. He must be this. He's so loving because Down syndrome people are so loving, aren't they? And it's never said with malice, but um, it just paints people with Down syndrome as being all the same. And really, they're not. Um so it removes his agency to express his full range of human emotions like the rest of us do. Um, so there's that immediate judgment that happens. And then also because he struggles to articulate himself, it requires patience on the listener's part 
to engage him in conversation. And, and for me too, you know, I'm not saying that I am great at this. There are times when I'm like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> it's going to be a long phone call, but check your privilege, isn't it? It um, So as much as the film is there is a great thought-provoking piece for people who, well, I think there's a statistic that says something like 25% of people either have or are related to someone with a disability. So, you know, most of us will um, spend time with uh, a disabled person or become disabled or have a disability at some point in our lives. So, um, yeah, as much as it's there to kind of educate people, make them think, even for me with a brother who has complex disabilities, it made me go, yeah, flip a neck um, and reflect on, you know, are there times when I need to take a moment and listen better? So that's that. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, we're about to have some time off work. Or I'm about to have some time off work. Mr. Kent is already enjoying some time off work, but I will still be here. I will still be bringing you an episode of the podcast, even though I'm not working. Um, And I'd love to know what you think of this episode. And um, yeah, come back tomorrow for more. What do I hope for you? I hope that you get to talk to someone that makes you feel heard. Or you listen to a podcast that makes you feel like you're not the only one. (laughs) Maybe not this one, maybe another one. And uh, I hope that you get a chance to sort of be a bit serious about something as well. Not feel that you have to joke about it. Um, Maybe there's that too. There you are. To quote my friend Helen, there you are. I will be back with you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome to the Tony Daily with me, Tony Kent. It is the podcast that invites you to come find yourself so you can listen to this and say, oh, thank God for that. It is not just me. Today, let's talk about feeling slightly nervous when it comes to sharing your experiences or speaking up, maybe presenting, um, getting in front of other people. I often encounter this when I'm writing for LinkedIn and I'm writing about my experiences. And there's almost like this little sign that the thing that I'm going to share will resonate. But I always get that moment of, I don't know. Um, And I guess that is my little signal I suppose that it's okay to share this and there's a risk maybe inherent in sharing it so I wrote a piece which I think I spoke about on the podcast which touched on how access to maternity services or the um, interactions that you have with people will be coloured by how you speak and how you present yourselves and I shared how for me when I had my kids, uh, so I was 31 when I had our daughter and then 33 when I had our son. 
And by that point, I had established um, a really successful career. What felt successful to me, um, I was in a place of financial stability. I was in a place of emotional stability. There were lots of things that I had achieved that I wanted to achieve. So with that comes confidence and I guess um, comfort. And so when I um, went to like um, antenatal classes, I knew that national childbirth, na- childbirth, national child, oh my God, national childbirth trust existed and I had the means to pay for it. And I'm telling you, going to NCT classes is light years away from NHS antenatal classes. And I wrote about this and how my experience had been good. And the way that I was spoken to was very um, respectful, uh, for want of a better term. But I was able to speak to the people providing my care in such a way that I felt informed and I felt empowered and I felt that I could ask for what I wanted. And this was contrasted with the experience of one of my brother's former partners where she was shouted at by a midwife. I took her into hospital because we, we'd been out celebrating my birthday years ago. Uh, I think I was 24 at the time. And the midwife shouted at this young woman for wearing black knickers how do you know if you've if you've had a show? And then she got shouted at again for not carrying her notes. And, you know, for me, it was like, oh, carry your notes with you at all time. But my uh, experience into um, becoming pregnant and going on that whole process of becoming a mother was entirely different to hers. And she had gone into pregnancy extremely young and didn't have access to the same level of finances or anything that I had. And she was spoken down to and shouted at, at a point where she felt like she was about to give birth. Um, And as I've got older, I've noticed that these things really do matter and count and they do happen. And I think someone put it really well today. They put a comment on my post saying, look, it's hard to talk about these things when you are the person that's received the positive treatment. And I think that's something that I've always struggled with. Historically, it was, oh, I'm so guilty. I feel so guilty. I feel so guilty that my life is not as hard as some of my family members. But that doesn't serve anybody. It doesn't help anybody. So I did post about access to maternity care. And then I wrote a post this morning Um, that lots of people have responded to where I was reflecting on calm confidence versus having the gift of the gab. Um, And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to read it to you and you can tell me what you think. So calm confidence versus the gift of the gab. My experience of growing up in a working class community is that having the gift of the gap was seen as a huge asset, being able to rapidly establish rapport, being quick, being witty and having a thick skin so you can get by in the rough and tumble of everyday life. You've got to graft, got graft, got to put yourself forward and crucially not take yourself too seriously. This was a lesson that I took to heart, being nicknamed Mad for the South, thank you, Chris, by one classmate and told you never did stop talking 
by an uncle. Thank you, Dean. My background meant that I thrived in sales environments, although I did struggle to develop that thick skin and found dealing with disagreement very hard. And I did find it extremely hard. I would become very defensive and I guess feel under attack. Uh, took it too personally. As I moved into the corporate world, I found that what would be viewed as rough edges were being smoothed off and professionalized to the extent where I could operate at levels I wouldn't have gained access to before. Compare this to the example of a conversation I had with a privately educated young person. They were eloquent, calm, and put their point across with ease and confidence and without arrogance. Disagreement was not met with defensiveness, <laughs> which I would have done, but with even-tempered curiosity, it struck me that before this young person had reached the age of 18, they can already conduct themselves in a way that I didn't learn until I was well into my 20s. And that experience highlighted to me something that doesn't get widely spoken about in the context of private schooling. You hear a lot about first-class sporting facilities, guaranteed small class sizes, and outstanding results. But what isn't articulated is that polish. In the same way that it is bad form to talk about money, you probably wouldn't want to advertise that you're offering distinct soft advantages. So what can we do? I hope by offering a perspective as someone who grew up working class and disadvantaged to raising their children in a solidly middle class environment where their peer group and family connections range from shopping trolleys on the front lawn to tennis courts in the back garden, we could acknowledge the differences that exist and how some young people have much farther to travel before entering the world of work. So there you are. And I did think before I published it, I was like, oh, is it the right thing to do? Is it the right thing to talk about? But I think it is. Um, and there's been lots and lots of times in the past few years. I mean, and even going back to when I wrote Reasons to be Cheerful Part One, there have been so many realizations that I have come to where you notice that there are certain things that help people to get ahead and some people will never understand what it's like to not have um, advantage or not have financial stability or not have that confidence and that is not the fault of those people because um, you, you don't, unless you see it, you you may not really understand it. So, you know, I mean, God, the, the examples we're seeing at the moment. And I guess the question is whether you are open to understanding other people's circumstances and going, wow, you know, that's outside of me, my experience. And I'm interested to learn more and see how, if there is some prejudice or unfairness at play here, how can we prevent that? I think, you know, we all have a responsibility to be curious about the world, to be curious about each other. And if we see that there is unfairness, I do think that we have a responsibility to talk about that and highlight it. And then see what we can do about it because that stops us having businesses where everyone 
looks, talks and acts the same, that gives us organisations that are more representative um, and it stops people from being excluded from opportunities purely because of where they were born or how they grew up. So I hope that maybe you took something from this. Um, I hope that if there's something that you feel nervous about talking about because it matters to you that you take that little sense of nervousness as a sign what do they call it gut instinct isn't it take that as your gut saying to you this is important to you so you can talk about it um, and in doing that we do find other people that can relate to us or want to help us or might spread that message even further so that's that for today um and that's what i hope for you if you've enjoyed this episode please give it a share i will be back with you tomorrow bye-bye hello and welcome to the tiny daily with me tony kent it's the podcast that invites you to come find yourself so you can listen to this and say oh thank god for that it's not just me and i can speak to you and say no it is not just you it is also me. Thanks for all the feedback on yesterday's episode. I'm so glad that so many people enjoyed it. Had a lot of fun um, chatting to people on on LinkedIn and Instagram, Facebook at Al. So I'm glad that that resonated with you. Endless apps. Um, I had a call yesterday with someone who hopefully uh, booked me to do a speaker slot at um, an event they've got coming up next year and we talked about social inequality and healthcare amongst other things but this really struck a chord with me um or let's so they're talking about social inequality um and low socioeconomic status and, and how that impacts people um and something that i have observed and i spoke about it a little bit in my access to maternity care and how I got better care because if you met me (laughs) oh my god if you met me but you know I was a married 30 something year old woman who was wearing her diamonds and spoke very nicely and has very um comfortable lifestyle thank you very much not stressed um you get treated differently than if you are 19 and you are wary of professionals it's true it does happen so um we got onto the topic of health outcomes and something that i've been acutely aware of is how my health is that much better um because I don't live in the circumstances in which I grew up. And let me give you some examples. So, um, and I'm going to sort of tread carefully on this, but I'll give you some examples that I can talk about because these are my experiences. Um, whenever I used to register with a new doctor, which wasn't like that frequently, but um, if you ever have to fill out a form, uh, God, even if you go like for a massage, you've got to fill this form out about your bloody medical history. But whenever I was asked to talk about my family's medical history, 
I used to joke. And I was like, well, I'm going to need more. I'm going to need more than one side of A4. You're going to need to give me the whole, <laughs> the whole pad. Give it to me. Um, and there are some um, health conditions that are present in my family. So there is um, poor heart health on the maternal line. So my mum had a form of heart failure. Her mother had a form of heart failure. <laughs> they both were like, it's not the same. Don't say that I've got the same as her. Um, now, I know, like with my mum, some of that becomes exacerbated by having a sedentary lifestyle. And she didn't really leave the house in the last, I don't know, she rarely left the house in the last decade of her life. Um, so there's heart problems. Um, and my mum also had uh, respiratory problems of lung, Chug-Strauss syndrome. Her mother had a different lung issue, um, both very serious, both life-limiting. Uh, my dad had malignant melanoma, so he died because he got skin cancer. Um, and then there was a load on my dad's side that we didn't know about, because basically, you know, everyone, all skeletons have been put in the cupboard. Um, and then two of my brothers have a kidney complaint, which you tend to grow out of, but apparently it's unusual that two children in the same family should have it. Um, I have a brother with Down syndrome. Um, so there is a lot of stuff going on there. And as a result, it meant that when um, I found out about my mum's heart failure, I went for screening because there is a slim chance that it, it can be... Um, you know, genetically passed on, hereditary, that's it. It's a slim chance it could be hereditary. So I went and had my heart checked, heart's okay. Um, I had nuchal fold screening when I became pregnant because whilst, um, as far as I understand it, Down syndrome is not hereditary, um, I saw, um, I guess, my mum's struggles and I wanted to know what my risk factors were um, and get a sense of kind of, this is really hard to talk about actually. And I know women who have been in a similar position. Um, now it didn't come to that, but it was a question that was very present in my head at the point that I became pregnant because of my family's experiences. Um, and what is really clear to me is that because I left an environment where I had, as I was growing up as a child, I had a very poor, very limited diet. Um, and some of that was down to me being bloody picky, you know, white bread only sugar all the time we used to even like raid the medicine cabinet for um amoxicillin we always had antibiotics in the house and this is back in the day where they just prescribed antibiotics all the time um i had my tonsils and adenoids out i had my sinuses drained and when i look back on it and i think so i must have had some 
problems there. I do remember having a terrible tonsillitis, but I lived in a house where our dad smoked and I was speaking to somebody who is of the same generation as me and they had um, lots of ear infections growing up. And she said what wasn't understood at the time was that if you live in a smoker's household, you are. Well, I mean, of course, we know that now. You are more likely to get these kind of infections. So, yeah, I had my tonsils and adenoids out. I had digestive problems. I got prescribed with bran. We had to go to the chemist and get bran that used to be put on top of my uh, Rice Krispies that had tons of sugar on them. Um, and I had loads of fillings. Again, there was a time in NHS dentistry where they would get paid per filling. And it was discovered that some dentists were using, uh, were basically taking out perfectly healthy teeth or putting fillings in teeth that didn't need them. Um, so I had a lot of fillings. And what I uh, can look at, look back at now is that as I got to a position where I earned enough money and lived in an area where it was very easy to access um, a wide variety of foods. And once my husband helped me to sort out my eating problems, and I think I've touched on this before, I did for, I was bulimic for a number of years. Um, and for me, it was all about control. But it meant that my eating was, as they say now, very disordered. Um, and so because I met him at a young age, I was almost able to kind of put right a lot of the damage that I had done. And the thing that I notice is that, for example, with like, um, so because of my dad's malignant melanoma, I have to keep a really close eye on my skin. And I did have a melanoma in situ removed, which meant it was pre-cancerous, but it had to come out um, and that made me very frightened but the good thing is is that now skin cancer is much more easily detected and better treated in a way that it couldn't be when my dad had it um, so it doesn't you know it needn't be fatal um, but I was able to go to uh, get a referral I went to a specialist I got that done privately whilst I was still working in corporate and then things like um, there are mental health problems in my family. And it's not surprising because when you are living under constant stress, so when you have high stress and low income, you are not able to make decisions from a place of mental kind of calm. And I was thinking about how I know I have the propensity for anxiety, low moods, um, poor mental health. However, because I live in relative comfort, I'm in a position where over the years I've been able to go to a coach and say, please, can you help me with this decision? Or I've been able to seek out and pay for therapy. And Again, I can do that from a position where I can rationally think about what kind of therapist do I want? How often do I want to speak to them? I can speak to my husband and my children about it. Um, 
and we can make jokes about it and that's fine because we do um and again yes there are times when i have had health problems so if i think about it you know i have access therapy to help with my overall well-being i had an ectopic pregnancy which again for some people they would i was really um what's the word i felt very calm about it all actually and then i learned how dangerous an ectopic pregnancy can be and thought all right maybe i shouldn't have been so chill about it but again that happened when i was in really well-paid employment and where i could say to my employer look this is happening i need to go to hospital and then i need to rest and they were like yes no problem take all the time you need you are on full pay and that meant that going through the process of having my fallopian tube removed was all right i woke up the next day and i might have again i might have spoken about this before and I felt like the most amazing sense of calm. Like, you know, when people say I found God or that I, I saw a light when I had a near death experience, I felt like that. And then somebody said to me, that can happen when anesthetic wears off. You sort of wake up and go, ah. Um, yeah, so I cracked on with my one fallopian tube. And, and luckily, about eight weeks later, I fell pregnant again. Um, but as I get into my late 40s and approach my 50s, my overall health is significantly better than that of my siblings. And that comes from the fact that where I changed my um, life so significantly, and I'm now in a position where I don't have half the stress they have to deal with, I am financially comfortable, but not secure forever. You never know what's around the corner. Um, you know, I can't retire yet. And um, what was the other thing I was going to say? I know, but I just, oh, and like for my kids, my kids are in amazing health. And they've been like from, they were, you know, they're weaned, weaned on organic food weaned on organic food, darling. Um, so again, I know that their health outcomes are going to be even better than mine because of the privilege of how I've been able to raise them. So um, I feel like I want to talk a bit more about this and I might write something about this. I'll probably put something on my socials, but I would love to kind of hear from you what you think whether you agree, whether you disagree, whether you have also seen the difference that comes with um, health outcomes when you are able to um, achieve social mobility. How about that? So what I hope for you, I hope you're in good health. I mean, that's all we can hope for anyone. As long as you've got your health, that's what, that's what the oldies used to say, as long as you've got your health. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please give it a share. If you want to chat about it, message me via my socials and I will be back with you tomorrow.